Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Um, if you've grown up or, or spent time around more traditional churches, then Advent typically looks like uh, you light a candle each Sunday, and um, those candles represent specific things. We don't do kind of formal Advent here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. Uh, what Advent is, is that it's uh, the weeks leading into Christmas. It's a designated period of time that's intended to help uh, believers prepare their hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And even though we don't do the, count, the candles and follow kind of the traditional kind of strict format of that, we want to help you do the same thing as we approach the celebration of Christmas, the birth of Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to spend time looking at the Christmas story. And if you've been in church for 20 years, let's say, then you've probably heard 20 different Christmas series. Uh, the story never changes. It still hasn't. Jesus was born. Um, but hopefully what we're able to do over the next few weeks is take a look at a particular uh, theme that runs through the Christmas story and to talk about what that means for us, what that looks like. And the theme that we want to look at is God's pursuit of humanity, that in the Christmas story, that in the coming of Jesus into the world, there is this divine pursuit, that God is pursuing humanity that has rebelled in sin and uh, in brokenness and has walked away from him, and he pursues us in the midst of that. And so the way I want to start that this morning, that series for us, is with a story of a man named Frank Abagnale Jr. Um, you've maybe heard the name before. He's got a movie and a book that were made about his life called Catch Me If You Can. He's uh, the most successful or prolific con artist in American history. Uh, at the age of like 12, he began that journey. And his dad owned a business, gave Frank a credit card, said, I want you to be in charge of buying various supplies for the business. And so Frank, after a little time of doing that, realized he could buy extra beyond what his dad told him to purchase and then sell the extra stuff that he bought and keep the profit for himself. And at some point, dad figured that out. And obviously he got in some degree of trouble for that. But he basically became attracted to uh, the allure of fooling people. And so as he got older, his cons got larger and larger. So after scamming his dad out of money, he began a pretty widespread bank fraud scheme. And what he would do, or part of it, was that he would stand at the spot in the bank where people would fill out a deposit slip. And as a person filled theirs out, he would pretend to be doing something, but he would watch the account number that they wrote down. And when they walked away and went to the counter to deposit their check, he would take that account number, put it on a withdrawal slip for the same amount of money that they just put in their account, and he would go to the counter a few minutes after them and withdraw the money they just put in. And so when that family then uh, called the bank and said, hey, we came and made a deposit, we've got the slip that shows it, but the money never went into our account, or it went in and it came right back out, and the bank would do what they needed to do to make that right, he would have the profit. And ideally, no one was harmed. At least that's what he thought. And so he made a significant amount of money that way and in other bank fraud schemes. Uh, and as he was beginning to get found out there, he ended up leaving uh, that area. And his next con was that he began posing as uh, an airline pilot. Between the ages of 16 and 18, he flew a, over a million miles with Pan American Airlines as a co-pilot. 
And so he wrote the airline a letter. He asked if he could have a uniform, uh, and they sent him one for some reason. And then he, he was able to make uh, his own nameplate. He somehow got himself scheduled into some of these flights. And so he would fly all around the nation and eventually overseas uh, as a co-pilot for Pan American Airways. And he said, I never thought anything of it. I just thought I was traveling for free until one day over the Atlantic, the pilot said he wanted to take a nap and turned the aircraft over to me. And he, he said, I realized in that moment that I had hundreds of lives in my hands and I had no idea what I was doing. And so he walked away from that because of the danger of it and began his next con, which was posing as a doctor. <laughs> and at a, a hospital in Georgia actually hired him to be uh, the oversight for all of their medical interns. And he did that for quite some time until he came to a similar realization as with the airline thing that a few times uh, one of these medical interns needed help and he could provide them nothing because he didn't actually have any medical knowledge. And he said, when I realized that someone could die because I didn't know what I was doing, I, I realized I needed to walk away from this. So he stepped out of the hospital in Georgia and ended up posing as a lawyer in the, attorney, the state attorney general's office in the state of Louisiana. He fabricated a degree, uh, a diploma from Harvard Law School, got himself hired only to figure out, I you know, actually need to be a lawyer. And so he took the Louisiana State Bar exam three times, and he passed it on the third time. And about the same time he actually passed the bar exam, someone in the attorney general's office was catching on to the fact that he was not actually a lawyer and had never attended Harvard Law School. And so he fled the country for fear of prosecution. And he ended up running... Uh, con artist schemes in 12 different countries before finally being caught in France. Uh, a former uh, co-worker in the airline industry noticed him getting on a plane at the airport and alerted the authorities and they came and they arrested him and they charged him with uh, varying degrees of criminal activity in 12 different countries and they sentenced him to 72 years in prison. Two of those were served internationally. He spent one year in a prison in Switzerland. He spent a second year in a prison in France before he was extradited to America, uh, where he was supposed to serve out the rest of his sentence. But after three years in an American prison, the FBI offered him a job and said, we will, we will let you out of your 70 remaining years of prison time if you will work for us in our anti-counterfeit uh, crime department. And he spent, he is still to this day, uh, works as a, uh, doing consulting work for the FBI in how to stop counterfeit crime. All the while, while Frank Abagnale Jr. was uh, hopping all around the world, leading this, all of these various con artist schemes and imposing as all of these various professions, there was a team of FBI agents uh, that started out kind of small, single agent, and grew and grew and grew and grew, trying to catch him in the act of this. And the FBI spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and thousands of um, employment hours trying to catch Frank Abagnale Jr., which illustrates the purpose of this story, which is that uh, the pursuit of a guilty man often requires extreme measures. And more often than not, uh, the more guilty an individual is, 
the more extreme the measures become to catch them. As his schemes grew larger and larger and larger, all of a sudden they needed international agencies to help them. They needed more FBI agents on the case. There was more that they were trying to figure out and tie the pieces together. As he became more guilty, the measures needed to catch him became more and more extreme. One of the things that we celebrate at Christmas is that God was willing to go to extreme measures in his pursuit of us. We see that in the birth of Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to celebrate and reflect upon that every year. And that's what we want to bring out this year as we look at the Christmas story, is just how far God was willing to go in his pursuit of guilty, sinful, broken humanity. I want to begin uh, our time doing that in Luke chapter 2 and kind of give us a a little bit of a run-up into the story of Jesus' birth. In both Matthew and Luke, we get accounts of the birth of Jesus and then also get some snapshots of various individuals or groups of people in and around the event of Jesus' birth. And so by looking at each of those, we get a different view of God's character. We get a different view of his love and his nature and his desire to pursue relationship, right relationship with humanity. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks walking through that. I'm going to start us today in Luke chapter 2. Specifically, we're going to look at verses 8 to 20, but I'm going to start us by reading verses 1 to 7. Luke 2 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And what happens next is a familiar story of shepherds in a field somewhere near Bethlehem who have this encounter with an angel, but a host of angels. And so what converges in this field somewhere in the region of or outside of Bethlehem is this interaction between very poor and very lowly shepherds and very high and very holy angels. And it starts in verse 8, which says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Just so we're on the same page as to who both of these groups are, uh, I just want to walk through a little bit of how would a shepherd have become a shepherd and what is an angel exactly? Who was interacting in the field? You see, shepherds weren't exactly beacons of societal importance. In fact, they hadn't made the cut in schooling. And so, like any other tradesman of the day, they were sent home to what was called ply their trade, to learn the family business and carry that on. And so here's how Jewish schooling worked. There were three phases. You started when you were six years old and you were enrolled in school. There would be a scribe or a rabbi who would teach young children uh, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And from ages six to ten, the goal was to memorize the entirety of that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But by the age of ten, in order to move on to the next a step of your education process, you had to have the Torah memorized. And the best and the brightest at that uh, would get to move forward, and those who weren't able to do so were sent home to learn the family business and become a tradesman. And so in the second phase, from somewhere in the age of 10 up to about the age of 14, 
uh, a Jewish student would learn the remainder of the Old Testament scripture. They would also start to learn how it is that a particular Messiah or scribe or Pharisee interpreted that and applied it to life. They would learn the art of uh, Jewish kind of question and answers, which was actually answering questions with questions. You see Jesus do that a lot. And they would spend from year, uh, from age 10 to 14 memorizing the rest of the Old Testament so that someone who completed the second phase of their Jewish education at the age of 14 would have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. For the scope of that, if you just look down at the Bible that's maybe in your lap, it's about two-thirds of that book that you're holding. And it's the age of 14, those who weren't able to do so or didn't quite keep up in school, they were sent back home to learn a trade, while others went into the final step of their education process, which was to approach a rabbi and say, I would like to become your apprentice or your disciple. And there would be an interview that would take place, and the rabbi would ask some questions of this prospective student, except for it wouldn't just be, oh, tell me about Noah, or oh, tell me about you know, the plagues in Exodus, they would ask questions like, tell me what Genesis 7 verse 12 says, but tell me backwards. Or tell me what Exodus chapter 13 says, but only tell me the odd numbered verses. And there would be an interview process that went back and forth like that. Like back and forth like that. And if a rabbi got to a place where he felt like this student can keep up and would potentially make a good rabbi, then he would say, come follow me. And that student would spend... X number of years following around a rabbi, seeing how it is that they conduct themselves in the synagogue and how it is that they interpret all of scripture and interact with people and how it is that they teach. And at the end of that, a student would have the chance to become a rabbi, which was like the pinnacle of the Jewish education process. The shepherds didn't make it there. We don't find out when they got sent home. We don't find out exactly how far they got into school, but for some reason, they didn't continue forward in the education process, as was the case with most of Jewish society at the time, and therefore they were sent home to learn the family business, which in this case happened to be herding sheep. Herding sheep wasn't exactly a glamorous job. In fact, it would be hard to find something that was much lower ranking in terms of societal desirability. Maybe a tax collector at the time. Uh, they were pretty despised. Otherwise, a shepherd was about as low as it got. It didn't pay well. You would spend ex extended periods of time wandering around in fields with a flock of sheep, protecting them, making sure that they uh, were able to eat and were cared for. By no means would worldly wisdom have said that this group of people is who should get the initial announcement of the Savior's birth. In fact, if anyone was going to receive that announcement, it likely should have been rabbis, Pharisees, scribes. Because the rest of the Jewish community would have looked up to them, would have trusted what it is that they were saying. If a rabbi had stepped forward in a synagogue and said, the Savior has been born in Bethlehem, everyone at the synagogue would have said, okay, let's go find out. Now, if a shepherd walked into town and said, the Savior has been born in Bethlehem, they probably would have said, you spent too much time with the sheep. I, it doesn't make any sense. And yet that's precisely the way God chooses to make the announcement. He chooses a group of poor and lowly shepherds. And the interaction happens with a group of angels. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. The second group here is a host of angels. Verse 13 says that there was a host of them. One speaks 
to the shepherds. And it was terrifying for the shepherds. In fact, if you were to pick your way all the way through uh, Scripture and find all the times that a human interacts with an angel, you would find that fear is a part of the vast majority of those. Because when a sinful and a broken person comes into contact with something that's high and holy, like an angel, fear is the natural response. And so that's what the shepherds experience. Angels are the only thing, the only other thing in all of God's created order that has moral license, that has the ability to choose to follow the Lord or not. In fact, Scripture tells us that uh, at a certain time, a group of angels chose to disobey the Lord. They chose to sin, and they fell out of heaven. They have no chance of ever being redeemed. All the remaining angels, which Revelation tells us is myriads upon myriads or ten thousands upon ten thousands, exist eternally in heaven with the Lord. And they've got various purposes, but chief among them is to praise and to glorify God. If you read the book of Revelation, you see a picture of what angels have been doing for all of eternity, which is singing some form or fashion of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're in the presence of God because they're sinless and they're holy. So here in a field, somewhere in the region of Bethlehem, somewhere outside Bethlehem, a host of high and holy comes into contact with a group of poor and lowly. And the angels have a message that they want to deliver. This starts in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. The main thing I want you to take away this morning is that God's divine pursuit of humanity is for all. Everyone. Look back at verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God's plan has always been that. The book of Genesis, when God calls Abraham and his descendants to follow him, he says that Abraham is going to have descendants that will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He tells them that they will have a land that will be their own, and he tells them that all the nations will be blessed through them. All the nations. In the book of Exodus, when God is using these amazing plagues to bring judgment upon the Egyptian people, at one point he tells Pharaoh the reason for it. He said, I'm choosing to, make, to display my power through you, Pharaoh, so that all the world might know the power of the God of the Israelite people. When Solomon prays to dedicate the temple, he prays that the nations would come to the temple and see the glory of the Lord. God's heart has always been for all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all over the world to be blessed have the opportunity to enter into eternal relationship with him. And there's this incredible picture of that in the field outside of Bethlehem here. High and holy, eternally present in the company of the Lord, angels make an announcement to poor and lowly shepherds that salvation, a savior, has arrived. The shepherds hadn't earned the status of religiously competent or special. They hadn't studied the law or taught the scriptures the way a scribe or a rabbi or a Pharisee would. And yet, they were invited to come and see the Savior. 
No prior uh, requirement needed. No prerequisite. Go and see. You'll find him lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. All the world is invited right now to come and see the Savior. If you're here this morning and you feel like your sin is too great to qualify you for a relationship with God, then it brings me great joy to tell you you are wrong. If you're here this morning and you feel like there's something about you that would make it impossible for the Lord to love you fully, it brings me great joy this morning to tell you that you are wrong. If you're here this morning and you feel like at one time in your life you you had a relationship with God and now you've walked away or you've drifted away from Him and He couldn't possibly ever allow you to come back, it brings me great joy to tell you this morning, you're wrong. God's divine pursuit of humanity is for all. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your economic status doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your career choice doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. There's an amazing thing that happens here in, in verse 10. Greek can be kind of a complicated language. And so I'm going to read you what the angels say as it appears in in my Bible and likely close to it in yours. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When you read that in Greek, the word all means all. Nothing else. No caveat. No special circumstances. Nothing. It is for all people. And this incredible gift, this great news, comes in the form of a baby, born and lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And that baby becomes a man who lives a life among humanity and is just dripping with grace and mercy and love. And that man goes and hangs on a cross through no sin of his own. He experiences the judgment for all the sin of all of humanity and he breathes his last breath there after crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he is laid in a tomb. And on the third day, he rises and walks out of that tomb triumphantly. And after some time here on earth, he ascends into heaven and right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning eternally until the moment that he will come back in power and put a forever end to the presence of sin. That good news is available to all. Everyone. No caveats. That's why angels, in verse 14, sing glory to God in the highest. That's why if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the constant refrain of your life ought to be glory to God in the highest. The pursuit of a guilty man often requires extreme measures. And in the story of Christmas, we get a picture of those. You see, because humanity is poor and lowly, and Jesus is high and holy, and the interaction between a poor and a lowly shepherd and a high and a holy angel pales in comparison to the fact that sinful, broken humanity was given a holy and a righteous Savior. It's just a shadow of the interaction that the Son of God has with humanity. God's divine pursuit of humanity is for all, but it does require a human response. I want to read you the end of this interaction. It's verses 15 to 20. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. There are a couple of kind of let's go moments in this. God's divine pursuit of us requires a human response. And so I just want to walk through, there are two of them in the text, and then I want to give us a third one as a church to really embrace this season. The first is in verse 15. The shepherds say, let us go to Bethlehem. Let's go see, they say. If you're here this morning and maybe you're resistant or reluctant about the claims of Christianity, I want to invite you over the course of the next few weeks to come and see the person of Jesus. That's the good news at Christmas. Is it a person? Jesus Christ was born into the world. A baby. The shepherds say, let's go see him. You may be here this morning and you say my resistance or my reluctance is an intellectual thing or maybe it's an emotional thing or maybe you've got a a hold up with some of the moral tenets of Christianity or whatever the case might be. I want to encourage you this morning that I don't think you're going to arrive at the end of your life in judgment before the Lord and want to be thinking to yourself, well, you see, I never really considered Jesus because I couldn't figure out how old the earth was. Was it 6,000 years old or a few million years old? And so I never really considered Jesus very seriously because of that. If you're here this morning and you're resistant to Christianity or reluctant to Christianity, I want to encourage you that I don't think you're going to want to stand before the Lord in your moment of judgment and say to yourself, well, I didn't really feel like God should be able to tell me how to live my life, so I never considered the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation is all about Jesus. Christmas is all about Jesus. This church, why we get together on Sunday mornings, it's all about Jesus. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to just challenge you over the next three weeks or so, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Investigate Him for who He claims to be. Because if Jesus Christ was born the way Scripture says He was born, if He lived the life Scripture says that He lived, if He died the death that Scripture says that He died, if He resurrected in the way that Scripture says that He resurrected, then that is worth staking your life on. That's worth placing all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your faith into. It's the only means by which you can have a restored, renewed, reconciled relationship with God. The second let's go moment is in verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. It's this let's go share moment. Part of God's divine pursuit of humanity is to take place through the witness of faithful believers. The shepherds saw a baby laying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, just as the angels had said. And when they saw Jesus, that was all they needed. They saw the Savior laying in a manger. And that was all they needed to see in order to go and share that with everyone else. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've seen the Savior What more do you need? What else is there to talk about? I mean, the Chiefs are having a great season, but Jesus defeated sin. 
What else is there to talk about? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I challenge you this Christmas season to have a let's go share mentality. And then I want to give one more. You'll notice at the very end of that account in verse 20 that the shepherds come back. After seeing the Savior and going and sharing the good news, they come back. I want to challenge us as a church to have a let's go back kind of mentality. As you prepare your heart for Christmas this year, as you anticipate celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, be content in your heart with simply being in the presence of Jesus. That's what the shepherds wanted. They just go back to be in the presence of Christ. Make that a goal for you and your family. Structure your holiday around that idea. Find ways to make being in the presence of Jesus the hallmark of your Christmas celebration this year. I was on Facebook the other day, and a friend of mine had posted uh, a question. He said, what, what is the most memorable gift you ever received at Christmas? And so I, I you know, clicked a little box to type a reply, and I started thinking backward. And I couldn't even remember what I had received last year as gifts. And I tried thinking all the way back, and I could remember a couple of Christmas presents over the years. If you're here and you're a parent, you've got children that still live in your house, someday those children are going to stand in a position like mine and think backwards, and I can't really remember any of the gifts I got. But if you're a parent and you've still got children in your house, you know what they would never forget? They would never forget if the thing at Christmas in your family was time in the presence of Jesus. That they could look back at their childhood and the way you celebrated Christmas in your house, and they would say confidently, I don't remember any of the stuff that I got, but I do remember that it was all about Jesus Christ. That we structured Christmas around being in the presence of the Lord. That's what the shepherds wanted. That's what they longed for. That's why they went and they saw Jesus laying in the manger. They went and told others so that they could come and see too. And then they just went back to be in the presence of Jesus. As a church, let's just spend this Christmas in the presence of Jesus. Because here's the reality. That baby that we celebrate at Christmas time is the same man that we just sang, and he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. For unto us a child is born, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. We're gonna sing that chorus together uh, once more as we close our service this morning. And that that would be our mentality this Christmas, that God has got this pursuit of us that comes to fruition in the birth of a baby, Jesus Christ, and that his birth is good news for all. So if you've not placed your faith in him, go and see. Come and see Jesus Christ. Investigate if he is who he says he is. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then pray that the Spirit would move your heart to go and to share. And as a church, let's make Jesus the thing this Christmas, that we just long to be in the presence of the Savior, because he shall reign forevermore. Let's sing.